0: Let me invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles this morning to John chapter 10. Uh, John chapter 10, for those of you that are visiting with us, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the gospel of John, and as we continue in our study of John, we come this morning to John chapter 10, verse 22, and my goal is, This morning is to cover uh, verses 22 to 42. And the title of the message, as you'll note on the sermon notes page that maybe you picked up from the back table, is Jesus addresses his detractors. Jesus addresses his detractors. It was in September of 2008 that Christopher Hitchens, the anti-theist, was debating a Christian apologist at Virginia Commonwealth University. And in that debate, Christopher Hitchens said these words to the Christian that he was debating. Listen to what Hitchens said, quote, I'll grant you that it would be possible to track the pregnancy of Mary and show that there was no male intervention in her life at all, but yet she delivered a healthy baby boy. I don't say that's impossible, but it does not prove that Jesus' paternity is divine, and it wouldn't prove that any of his moral teachings were thereby correct nor if I were to see him executed one day and then walking the streets the next, would that show that his father was God or that his teachings were true, Unquote. How would you respond to someone speaking the way that Christopher Hitchens does in this excerpt that I just read to you? If even the virgin birth and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead are not sufficient evidence to prove that Jesus was indeed the Son of God, then where do you go with such a person from there? What is there left to say to such a person? This is sort of the situation in which Jesus finds himself in our passage this morning. After all the miracles that Jesus has performed, and after all the amazing words that he has spoken uh, about himself, there are people in our passage today who will approach him and essentially say to him that he has not yet provided clear enough evidence that he is in fact the Son of God or the Messiah. Never mind that Jesus has performed multiple miraculous signs that are spoken about back in chapter 2, verse 23. Never mind that Jesus healed a man who had been lame for 38 years back in John chapter 5. And never mind that Jesus had healed a man who had been blind from birth in John chapter 9. Never mind that Jesus fed the 5,000 from five loaves and two fish in Galilee back in John chapter 6. Even more clear than these miracles, Jesus has been throughout this gospel revealing himself through the words that he has spoken. He has claimed to be the bread of life. He has claimed to be the Son of God and the Son of Man and the light of the world, Earlier in John chapter 10, Jesus claimed to be the good shepherd and the door of salvation. Back in chapter 8, he said to the Jews in Jerusalem, before Abraham was, I am, thereby claiming to be the great I am, Jehovah himself. Back in chapter 5, Jesus spoke of his relationship with God the Father in a way that left those who were listening to him realizing that he was speaking of himself as being equal with God. And yet, remarkably, there are many in Jerusalem who are refusing to believe that Jesus is the Messiah And some among them would say that they have just not seen and heard enough evidence or revelation to persuade them that Jesus is the Christ. And so they come to Jesus in our passage this morning with their complaint, essentially, a complaint which ends up provoking from Jesus, and this is how we're going to break down our study of this passage, five actions Five actions of Jesus toward those who felt that he had given them insufficient evidence to believe in him as the Messiah. Five actions of Jesus toward those who felt that he had, up to that point, not given them sufficient evidence or revelation to believe in him as the Messiah. And the first of these actions, let's word it this way, you can fill in the blanks. On your notes, Jesus explains why some do not believe in him despite clear evidence. Jesus explains why some do not believe in him despite clear evidence. Or instead of the word evidence, you can write the word revelation. Either of those words would work. Observe what John says beginning in verse 22. At that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The feast of dedication is presently called Hanukkah, a feast of Israel that became established in 162 B.C. You won't find it anywhere in the Old Testament. It was established In 162 BC and 165 BC, three years prior, the Syrian ruler Antiochus Epiphanes had desecrated the temple and turned the rooms of the Jerusalem temple into a brothel and sacrificed swine on the temple altar to a pagan deity But under the leadership of Judas Maccabees, literally Judas the Hammer, the Jews revolted and reclaimed the temple on the 25th day of Kislev in 162 BC. Kislev is the Jewish month that coincides with our month of December, which would make that date December the 25th. Upon reclaiming the temple, they cleansed the temple and rededicated it to Jehovah and established the feast of the dedication, which would last for a period of eight days. And here in verse 23, John tells us that during this feast of dedication, Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon, and this The portico of Solomon is the covered area on the east side of the temple where the Jews would gather with rabbis for discussions and debates and instruction. And sure enough, observe what happens in verse 24. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, "'How long will you keep us in suspense?' If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Literally, the Greek text has these men saying to Jesus, how long will you take our lives? That's literally what they're saying. A good paraphrase of their question would be, how long will you keep killing us with suspense? And then they say, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, at first blush, this seems like a positive inquiry until you consider the volume of testimony that Jesus has already given to them, some of which I've already reviewed for you just a few moments ago. What Jesus has already revealed to them should have left them more than convinced that he was the Messiah if their hearts were truly open to receiving what he had revealed. But these men who are encircling Jesus right now are still left unconvinced after all that Jesus has said and done. And what they're essentially saying here to Jesus is this, Jesus, we don't know for sure if you are the Messiah. And the reason we aren't sure is that you haven't done your part in making it sufficiently plain to us. So if you are the Christ, then make that clear to us and tell us plainly. Observe how Jesus responds beginning in verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. What Jesus is saying here is, The reason you aren't sure whether I'm really the Messiah is not because I have failed to make it plain. I have made it plain to you. Look again at what he says in verse 25. I told you, and you do not believe. Let's see. Jesus has told them that he is the bread of life and the light of the world, the door of salvation. He is the good shepherd The Son of Man, the Son of God, and the great I Am. What is all of that if it's not Jesus speaking plainly, revealing that he is the Christ? And then there are the works that Jesus has done that reveal the truth about him. In the second half of verse 25, he says, The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. And the works he's speaking of would include the unspecified signs that he performed in Jerusalem back in chapter 2, verse 23, and the healing of the man who had been lame for 38 years back in chapter 5, and his healing of the man born blind in chapter 9, and many other miracles that Jesus had performed that are recorded in the other gospels. But speaking of the two miracles that he had specifically done in Jerusalem, healing the man who had been lame for 38 years and the man born blind, you guys will recall that rather than being persuaded by those miracles that Jesus had performed, these Jews took offense on both occasions against Jesus because of the fact that he performed those healings on the Sabbath So Jesus is saying, I've done sufficient works to demonstrate to you that I am truly the Messiah. But you do not believe. And the reason you do not believe is not because I haven't been clear enough, but because there is a serious problem with you. And what is that problem with them? Look at verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Notice that Jesus is not saying here that they are not of a sheep as a result of their unbelief. What he is saying is that their unbelief in him is a manifestation of the fact that they are not of his sheep. Speaking of those who are his sheep, Jesus takes a moment to Speak about them to his audience of detractors. And this leads us to the second action of Jesus toward those who felt that he had not yet provided sufficient evidence for them to believe in him as the Messiah. Action number two, Jesus explains how his sheep respond to him. Jesus explains how his sheep respond to him. It's obvious how these men who are talking to Jesus have responded to him, but how do his sheep respond to him? Observe what Jesus says about his sheep in verse 27. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Jesus has already spoken three times in this chapter alone about his sheep hearing the voice of their shepherd. You see that back in verse 3 and verse 4 and verse 16. And now he does so here again in verse 27, stating that his sheep hear and they hearken to his voice when he calls to them and thereby reveal themselves to be his sheep. Next, he says in verse 27, and I know them. In other words, Jesus is saying, I know my sheep. I know them by name. I know them intimately. I have a personal relationship with each and every one of them. And then Jesus says in verse 27, and they follow me. Back in this day, it would often Happened that sheep from various flocks would be gathered into one large fold for the night and they would all get mixed up together to the point where you couldn't tell whose sheep belonged to whom. But in the morning, the different shepherds would take their position in different locations and they would call out to their sheep. And each sheep would respond to their shepherd's voice and go out of the fold to their shepherd. And in the end, you would know whose sheep was whose by the shepherd whose voice they responded to and by the shepherd that they followed. This is what Jesus is saying here in verse 27, and he's saying this to people who were refusing to hearken to his voice he's saying to them, you guys don't respond to my voice, but my sheep do. When I call to them, they get up and they follow me like a sheep would follow its shepherd, thereby revealing themselves as my sheep, just as you are revealing yourself to be not of my sheep. As for Jesus' sheep, he's infinitely good as a shepherd to those who belong to him. He's already stated in verse 27 that he knows his sheep, but in verse 28, he says even more, which leads us to the third action of Jesus toward those who felt that he had not yet provided sufficient evidence or revelation for them to believe in him. Action number three, Jesus explains how he and his father preserve his sheep. Jesus explains how he and his father preserve his sheep. And I want you to open your hearts up to what Jesus is going to say in this part of the dialogue here. Observe what Jesus says in verse 28. He says, And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. There are three wonderful statements that Jesus makes here regarding his sheep. First of all, he says, I give eternal life to them. Notice he doesn't say that they attain to eternal life or they earn eternal life somehow. No, he simply says he gives this eternal life to them as a gift And he describes this gift of life as eternal, which means that it goes on forever and is full of infinite eternal goodness. Jesus will teach us in John 17 that this eternal life entails an intimate relationship with God the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I give eternal life to them. Secondly, Because he gives to his sheep eternal life, Jesus says next in verse 28, and they will never perish. In other words, they will never come to eternal ruin like the wicked will. They will never suffer God's judgment in the lake of fire like the wicked will. They will never feel the slightest blast of heat from the lake of fire where the wicked will be cast And thirdly, in verse 28, Jesus says, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Earlier in this chapter, Jesus spoke about thieves and robbers and wolves who try to snatch the sheep away or destroy them. But Jesus is saying here that never will anyone or anything succeed in snatching one of his own sheep out of his grasp. That's what he's promising here. I remember many years ago watching footage of the tsunami that took over 230,000 lives in Indonesia back in 2004. One of the most tragic scenes that I saw uh, featured a husband who was clinging to a four by four column of a restaurant with one arm while trying desperately to hold on to his wife with his other hand. Yet the waters of the tsunami were pulling at her to the point where they eventually pulled her out of his grasp. This husband had the best of intentions to hold on to his wife, but the water proved stronger than he was, and snatched her out of his grasp. But when Jesus says here, no one will snatch them out of my hand, his promise comforts us because he is in fact the supreme power in the universe. There is no power greater than he that could ever come along and force his sheep out of his hand. That's good news, right? No one, he says here in verse 28, will snatch my sheep out of my hand. His language here also indicates to us that Jesus himself will never experience a moment of hesitation about holding on to us. There will never be a moment when he's so frustrated with us that he loosens his grip on us and allows us to be snatched away from Him. He will never become so repulsed by us that He recoils His hand from us and lets us go in disgust. Why is Jesus so resolved to hold on to His sheep like this? Look at what He says at the beginning of verse 29. My Father who has given them to me. That's a huge reason right there why Jesus would never, ever let anyone snatch his sheep out of his hand because he received these sheep as a gift from his Father to him. This is almost uh, too hard to even say out loud, but based on Jesus' language here, if you have come to Jesus and you have believed in Jesus, you are literally God's gift to Jesus. You might say, well, I hardly feel like I'm much of a gift. To Jesus, I'm such a mess. You may think that now, but just wait until you see what Jesus is going to do with you and what you're going to look like when Jesus is done with you. You will be a dazzling spectacle of unimaginable glory when you are perfected with Christ in heaven. And in the meantime, Jesus cherishes you, even in your brokenness. And he doesn't just cherish you as you, He cherishes you for the love gift that you are from the Father to him. And he loves you also because what he's making you to be. But look at the full statement of Jesus in verse 29. He says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So the image here is that the Father places his sheep into the hand of Christ, while at the same time, evidently, the Father is maintaining his hold on his sheep that he gives to Christ, which means that we who have believed in Jesus are in the double grip of the Father and the Son. So imagine, as a believer, that you are walking through life with Jesus holding on to your right hand And the Father is holding on to your left hand, and you are not so much holding their hand as much as it is that they are the ones holding on to you as you walk between them. From my earliest days growing up in a Christian home, I always knew that my dad loved this passage and this promise here. And I would hear him often telling people about what Jesus is saying here. And when he would explain this passage, he would usually tell the story of walking with a couple of us kids by the side of a busy road that had cars that were speeding by. And on that occasion, he said to us, hold my hand. But then he thought better of that And said to us, no, let me take your hand. My dad knew that we would be safest not when we were gripping his hand, but when he was gripping our hand. That way, even if we got spooked and decided to let go of his hand, it wouldn't matter because it was his grip on us that mattered. And this is what Jesus is saying here, only he's saying even more, teaching us that we are in the double grip of both the Father and the Son, and then teaching us that no one will ever be able to snatch us from the hands of the Father and the Son. And guys, if this is true, then it also means that not even you will ever be able to wriggle yourself free from this double clutch of the Father and the Son based on the way that Jesus is speaking here. John MacArthur once said, if I could lose my salvation, I would. And I resonate with that admission. If salvation depended on our grip on Jesus, then we would be losing our salvation all the time and having to worry about regaining it, right? But Jesus is saying here that no one, not even ourselves, will ever be able to snatch us from his hand and from the hand of his father ever, making this one of the clearest statements on eternal security of the believer in Scripture, and it's coming from the lips of Jesus. Not a single one of Christ's sheep will ever be plucked from the hand of the Father and the Son and then lose their salvation. And we know this is true, not because John Calvin says that it's true or Martin Luther says that it's true, but because Jesus says it's true. According to Jesus' words here, your salvation is not based on the strength of your grip on Jesus in any given moment. It's based on the strength of His and His Father's grip on you. And trust me, guys, if you have been born again through the Spirit of God, they got you forever, and they will never let go. In fact, observe what Jesus says in verse 30. He says, I and the Father are one. So Jesus and the Father are one in essence. They are one in being. They are one in unity of purpose. And important to this context, they are one in their heart's desire to keep and preserve their sheep forever. Christ and his Father are both always equally passionate about keeping hold of those who belong to him. I have uh, at our house a 1995 Corolla that I feel very attached to personally. Uh, It's my favorite car to drive. I've made a number of trips to the junkyard just to get parts to keep it working. But my wife is not nearly so attached to this car as I am. In fact, if it were up to her, we would get rid of it. But I don't want to let it go, at least not yet. So we keep it because at least one of us is attached to it. Perhaps there are things around your house or maybe a certain pet that you end up keeping because one of you doesn't want to let it go. But when it comes to us as Christ's sheep, both the Father and the Son are equally committed always to keeping us forever, loving us with equal fervor and commitment all the time. Which means that we never have to worry about Jesus and the Father disagreeing about whether or not they should hold on to us. There's never a time when the Father looks at you on a bad day and says to Jesus, "Uh, let's let this one go. And Jesus has to say, no, Father, let's keep him. That never happens, Jesus is saying. The Father and the Son are always united in their love for us and their passion to hold on to us even on our worst days. On top of that, there's no power in the universe that can ever loosen their grip on us. There's nothing we could ever do that would make them change their mind about us. And we are never such a mess that we are beyond the skill set of the father and son forcing them to let us go because they just can't handle us. And keep in mind that Jesus is speaking these truths to people who weren't even believing in him. He tells them that they're not believing in him because they were not his sheep. But then it seems that he's seeking to provoke them to jealousy by talking about the blessed security of those who are his sheep and how loved and cared for they are by Jesus, the good shepherd and his father. How do the members of Jesus' audience respond to Jesus' words here? Amazingly, they respond with disbelief, unbelief, and antagonism, which forces Jesus to engage in his next action toward those who felt that the evidence was as yet insufficient to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Action number four. Jesus reasserts his claim to be the Son of God. Jesus reasserts his claim to be the Son of God. Observe in verse 31 how the Jews respond to the beautiful words that Jesus has just been speaking. They asked Jesus to speak plainly to them about himself, and he just now dropped a truth bomb on them when he told them that he and the Father are one. Look at their response in verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. How's that for a response? Notice how John says again. At the end of John 8, we saw an earlier time when the Jews picked up stones to stone Jesus because they didn't like what he was revealing about himself. And now here they got the plain talk that they asked for from Jesus, and now they want to stone him for what he has said. Observe Jesus' response beginning in verse 32. He sees these men with stones in their hands, and they're about to stone him. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? Jesus has done so many good and beautiful works throughout his life and ministry, so many of them that John will later say in this gospel that the world itself couldn't contain the books that could be written of all that he did. And here Jesus is laying out all of these beautiful works that he has done before these men who are wanting to stone him. Words like, or works like healing the man who had been lame for 38 years and healing the man who had been born blind And feeding the 5,000 in John chapter 6. And Jesus is laying out these works before these men saying, For which of them are you stoning me? One commentator suggests that we should imagine the artist Rembrandt painting his very best paintings and presenting them to a kindergarten art teacher who then flunks him From her art class. Then imagine Rembrandt laying out all of his artwork before this kindergarten teacher and saying to her, For which of these works of art do you flunk me? That's what Jesus is saying here. And observe the response of the Jews in verse 33. The Jews answered him, For a good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. They asked for it. Tell us plainly. And he did. And this is their response. They view Jesus as guilty of blasphemy, primarily from a statement Where he says in verse 30, I and the Father are one. For anyone else to speak this way would have been blasphemy, but not for Jesus. They say to him, you being a man, make yourself out to be God. Little do these men realize that the opposite of what they are saying is indeed true. Jesus is not a man making himself out to be God. He is God who has become a man And as the God-man is standing in front of them and speaking to them and revealing himself to them. But these Jews refuse to believe this, and they accuse Jesus of trying to make himself out to be God. And in reply, Jesus has a most interesting response to their complaint. It's a line of argument probably none of us would have ever used or even thought to use. But the point of his line of argument is to question their grounds for being so offended at his claims about himself. And Jesus uses an unusual passage from the Old Testament to engage them and to make his point. Look at verse 34, where it says, Jesus answered them, has it not been written in your law, I said, you are God's, unquote. Jesus is quoting from Psalm 82, verse 6, a passage in which God is speaking to the judges of Israel. And in Psalm 82, 6, God says to the judges of Israel... I said you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. If it sounds strange to you that God would refer to men as gods in Psalm 82, it kind of is strange, but it's not without precedent. Write down these references. In Exodus 4.16, God speaks to Moses about Aaron. And listen to what God says to Moses about Aaron. Quote, and he, Aaron, will be as a mouth for you, and you will be as God to him. Unquote. In Exodus 7.1, God says to Moses, see, I make you. As God to Pharaoh. Sometimes God speaks this way of people who play a godlike role in his dealings with men. In fact, in Exodus 22, uh, verse 8, um, we see the scripture speaking of a man appearing before human judges. And the New American Standard translates it the word judges, but the Hebrew word is Elohim, that he appears before God. This is the way God is speaking here in Psalm 82 6, calling these judges of Israel gods and sons of the Most High because of their exalted role of sitting in the place of God to judge these people as God's representatives. But they were failing in that calling, and God is promising that he will judge them for their failure. So Jesus quotes from God's language in Psalm 82, verse 6, and he says to his detractors, Here in verse 35 of John 10, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, what he's saying is you can't quibble with the language of Psalm 82 for the scripture cannot be broken. If God wants to call these judges gods, then he can do that. And that being true, look at verse 36. Do you say of him whom the father sanctified and sent into the world, You are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. Jesus is not in any way trying to deny that he is God here. He's simply questioning their grounds for being so offended by his claims about himself. And yet, even in what he says here, Jesus makes three claims about himself that are staggering in their nature. First, he claims that the Father has sanctified him in a unique way, setting him apart as the Holy One for his mission as the Messiah. Second, the Father has sent him into the world, which means that Jesus was at one point apart from the world in his prior existence, yet God sent him into the world to accomplish his mission And then the third claim Jesus makes is that he is the son of God, which was a royal title wherein Jesus is claiming to be the messianic son of Psalm 2, whom God will establish in Zion. Notice here that Jesus refers to himself not as a son of God, but as the son of God, the one and only son. Son of God, the ultimate Son of the Most High, who does not fail in judging men. And Jesus is now turning the tables on these men for their audacity. Essentially saying, how can you take issue with me, the sanctified son of God, sent into the world by the Father, if in fact your own Bible has no qualms about calling mere mortal men gods and sons of God in certain contexts. Remember that back in verse 24, these men had asked Jesus to come right out and tell them plainly if he was the Christ. Jesus has done that, telling them that He and the Father are one in verse 30 and now referring to himself as the Son of God and reminding them that he has made that claim before. And you see him making that claim back in John chapter 5. But Jesus is not done yet, for it is now that he reaches his crescendo where he makes his final official appeal to the Jews And this brings us to the fifth and final action of Jesus toward those who felt that he had as yet given them insufficient evidence to believe in him. Number five, Jesus calls upon his listeners to know that the Father is in him and he is in the Father. Jesus calls upon his listeners to to believe and to know that the Father is in him and he is in the Father. Listen to his counsel to these men who do not believe in him and who right now think he's a blasphemer. He's just outright reminded them of his claim to be the messianic son of God. He sees the look of unbelief on their faces. So in verse 37, he reasons with them saying, if I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. He's saying, if the works I've done in healing the man blind from birth, and healing the man who had been lame for 38 years, if the other miracles I performed are not the very miracles that the Father would have done if he were here, then don't believe me when I make these claims about myself. If all I had to give you was a bunch of claims about myself... Without any works to back them up, then don't believe anything that I say to you about myself. In verse 38, he says, But if I do them, in other words, the very works that my father would do if he were here, if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Jesus is saying, even though you don't want to believe in me, and I can see that, at least get started by believing in the integrity and goodness of the works that I have done. If you do that, I know that those works will lead you to the inevitable conclusion that The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. This has been such an ugly exchange between Jesus and the Jews in Jerusalem, and it will prove to be the final exchange that Jesus has with the Jews in Jerusalem before the Passion Week that is coming in about three and a half months from this moment right here. Yet Jesus ends with this final gracious appeal for them to believe in his works and allow his works to lead them to a place of believing that he is in the Father and the Father is in him. And this is an appeal he delivers to men who have stones in their hands to stone him. Here we see the persistent grace and mercy of Jesus toward these men who are still disbelieving and hating Jesus after all that he has said and done as he delivers this final appeal for them to believe in him. And here in this passage, we find ourselves at the intersection of God's sovereignty and human accountability and the call to evangelize the lost. Jesus earlier had said to these men that they did not believe in him because they were not of his sheep. Yet here he is calling upon these men to believe in his works, which would lead them to a right knowledge about himself. Perhaps he does this and delivers this call because among these men were a few of his sheep, perhaps, who might at some point respond to his call and come to faith in Jesus and thereby show that they were his sheep after all. But either way, if these men disregard his gracious call to them to believe and in that disregard they thereby reveal that they are not of his sheep, then his final gracious appeal to them here will only serve to heighten their coming judgment under the wrath of God for refusing him. And this is all you and I can do when we find ourselves face to face with those who refuse to believe in Jesus and who find no evidence sufficient to believe in him. When encountering such people, do what Jesus does here and just keep pointing them to Jesus and to his works and his words and keep calling them to faith in Jesus in the hopes that they might believe and be saved. It may be your witness to them, your persistent witness to them, that God will use to bring them to faith in Jesus if they are truly of Christ's sheep. But if they persist in their unbelief, to their last breath, your words to them will serve to heighten their guilt and show themselves to be truly worthy of God's wrath. With such a merciful appeal at the culmination of this conversation, one might think that the Jews would soften toward Jesus and perhaps give heed to what he has just exhorted them to do, but observe their response in verse 39. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. They sought to seize Jesus so that they could stone him Or take him to the authorities, indicating that all of Jesus' appeals to them in this conversation have fallen on deaf ears. Yet Jesus eludes their grasp because his time for arrest had not yet come. It will come in about three and a half months, but not now. Then observe what Jesus does in verse 40, and I'm glad the chapter ends on this note text says, and he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John, John the Baptist, was first baptizing, and Jesus was staying there. Notice those words at the beginning of verse 40, and he went away. The Jews of Jerusalem have rejected Jesus. They've refused his final appeal, so Jesus went away. And notice that the text says he went away again, This is not the first time that Jesus has gone away from them after they have rejected him. Those who reject Jesus' mercy and his appeals to them might wish that he would just leave them alone and go away from them, but they should be very careful what they wish for. There is no worse fate that could ever befall anyone than for Jesus to go away and leave them alone in their unbelief. But notice the very different response of the people in this area east of the Jordan where Jesus resorts to. Verse 41, many came to him and were saying, while John, John the Baptist, performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. The response of these people is presented in stark contrast to the stubborn unbelief of the Jews in Jerusalem. And the faith of these people on the eastern side of the Jordan is remarkable for what it does not require. In verse 41, they're saying John performed no sign at all. Yet everything he said about Jesus was true. Honestly, there's no better words that could ever be spoken about any person than those words right there. I would be honored to have these words on my tombstone. Everything he said about Jesus was true. Parents, wouldn't you love for your children to be able to say everything my mom or dad said about Jesus was true. John the Baptist performed no miraculous signs. He had no gimmicks, no fog machine, or laser lights to impress people with, no dog and pony show. Yet everything he spoke about Jesus was true when he said in John 1.34 that Jesus was the Son of God when he said that Jesus was the bridegroom to whom the bride belonged in John 3:29 when he said that Jesus was from above in John 3:31 when he said that Jesus gives the spirit without measure in John 3:34 when he said that the father loves Jesus and gave him all things in John 3 35, and when he said that those who believe in Jesus will have eternal life in John 3.36. That's what these people in this region are realizing here. And not everything John the Baptist said about Jesus has even come true yet. Jesus has not yet gone to the cross as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Jesus has not yet baptized his people with the Holy Spirit and with fire, as John said that he would. But Jesus has done enough for these people to recognize the faithfulness of John the Baptist's testimony regarding Jesus. And in verse 41, look at this, John tells us that many of the people of this region came to him, to Jesus. And then in verse 42, he says, many believed in him there. Why did they believe in Jesus in this podunk region of Israel, east of the Jordan River? Because they were of Christ's sheep. Why did the Jerusalem Jews in our passage today not believe in Jesus? Because they were not of Christ's sheep. And this is ultimately how you tell who is of Christ's sheep and who is not by how they respond to him. And so what about you this morning? How will you respond to Jesus this morning? Will you accept God's revelation about him and believe in him, or will you reject Jesus? However you respond, you will thereby reveal whether you are Christ's sheep or not. In the final analysis, you can divide the human race into two categories. Those who are Christ's sheep and those who are not his sheep. Those who are not Christ's sheep will never be convinced of the truth about him, no matter how much evidence or revelation you give to them. And the reason they will never be convinced is because they don't want the truth about Jesus to be true. They hate the truth and will suppress the truth so that they can continue to live the way they want to live. But those who are of Christ's sheep will hear his voice and they will believe in him and they will follow him. And to them, Jesus will give eternal life. They will never perish and no one will ever be able to snatch them out of his hand or the Father's hand. And I hope and pray that you are among those sheep who belong to Christ and respond to him in faith. Let's pray together. I have no doubt, Lord, that in a room this size, there are decisions that need to be made as your spirit works in hearts and is drawing them to belief in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior that he is. I pray that you would touch their hearts and draw them to a saving knowledge of you this very morning when we see the stubborn blindness of those that surround Jesus in the temple at Jerusalem, they've got the God-man, the Messiah of the world standing before them, speaking plainly and who's done works to validate every claim he's making and they still don't see it. And rather than me and all of us shaking our heads at the stupidity of these men, we should all just drop to our knees in gratefulness to you that you touched our eyes and our heart and enabled us to see the truth about you. Because in and of ourselves, we would be just like them. Thank you for the miracle of sight that you have performed in us. The miracle of faith that you have wrought in us that we would come to know and see the truth about you and believe in you. We give you all of the glory. We're humbled by this miracle that we stood in need of. And from that vantage point of humility, Lord, help us to do as Jesus does here. And that is to persistently point people to Christ and evangelize them with the truth. And if they disbelieve that we continue to love them and speak your truth to them. And if they even are hostile against us, that we still persist in pointing them to you in the hopes that you might touch them and save them, that they might believe in you and thereby reveal that they are among your sheep. We don't know who is who. We're just called to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to every person and to make disciples of all the nations and leave the accounting to you. Help us to mirror the very gracious heart of Jesus that we see on display in this passage. Thank you for the security that we have as believers that we are always in the double grasp of Father and Son on our good days and bad days. On our days of highest holiness and our days of lowest failure. May such knowledge not make us at ease in our sin but may we be overwhelmed by such loving grace such that that loving grace will serve as wind beneath our wings and help us to soar in becoming all that you desire for us to be. This is love, vast as the ocean, indescribable. And we give all the praise to you for your great love for us. We say these things to you Lord, in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said,